Let's say this together. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul and leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. You may be seated. So we kicked off a a short mini-series just three weeks. Last week, we kicked it off the first Sunday of that. We talked last week about uh, three types of unanswered prayers, which I told you was a bit of a misnomer. There's no such thing as an unanswered prayer. Uh, Sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is not what we wanted. Sometimes the answer is not what we expected. But God is always faithful to uh, give to us his will for our lives and our circumstances. And, uh, And sometimes that can be difficult and sometimes that's really exciting. And today I want to talk to you about something that is so vital uh, in the life, I think, of every believer. It should be, and it's something that we try to encourage greatly here at Christ Community Church. It goes hand in hand with our core values of love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And it is the theme, it is the idea, it's the practice of praying for others. And I think it's, uh, it's easy if we're not careful and we're not kind of cultivating our prayer life, we can allow ourselves to fall into an environment where we pray a lot about the things that are important to us. Uh, job circumstances, things that are going on in our lives, decisions we need to make, uh, things that are upsetting us and have knocked our world out of balance. And I do not in any way want to discourage you from praying uh, persistently about those things. But I would encourage you to not pray persistently about those things to the exclusion of praying for others. Uh, When we talk about those core values, uh, we have taken our core values as a church from from the answer that the Pharisees, uh, the answer to the question the Pharisees had asked of Jesus, which was, what is the most important commandment? And Jesus said is to love God and love your neighbor. They are they're twins, they're companions. They cannot be separated from one another. But as I've mentioned in other messages here in the last several weeks, the Western church in particular struggles with a very me-centered kind of gospel, uh, a very self-centered type of Christianity and religion. And that is not at all what Jesus taught to us. And in fact, last week we talked about uh, not praying for things that God says he will take care of for us, that we don't have to pray for those things. 
because he's going to care for his children. And uh, that, that illustrates the idea that, that God wants us to be a, a people who have a mind and a spirit to think beyond ourselves and to consider what else might we pray for. And so uh, we're going to look at that this morning. Uh, and this idea comes from, obviously, some examples in Scripture that I'm going to give you. But I love this passage of Scripture that's found in Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 30. And I should have my Bible along with me here. Mine's on my iPad. If you have one, I always encourage you to turn there with us. If you got a paper Bible, which I also still really love to use, um, you can, of course, do that. Ezekiel chapter 22. And we're going to be in verse 30, but the what's happening here is that Israel has found themselves at odds with God. And the prophet is, is trying to call them back to their faith. And uh, he's, he speaks this long passage of all the things that, that God has tried to do, that he has tried to do to call the people together, even to find just one who would be faithful so that God's favor could begin to return to the people. And he expresses it in this way in Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 30. He says, I sought for a man among them who should stand, who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. And there's this concept that's contained within here. While these words were about a specific time, a specific people, a specific place and circumstance, when we read these stories from the Old Testament, we can understand things about the character and nature of God that transcend time, that, that go beyond just a story. And if God has moved here in a time to say that he is looking for, through the prophet, Someone who would stand in the gap, who would, who would, if, and the picture there is you have this, this castle or a, or a, a fortress with a, a, a mighty wall and there's been a breach that's been made, a hole has been created where the enemy can come in and attack and someone needs to defend that space. Not necessarily for themselves because of course they're putting themselves at great risk to do that, to stand in, the, in that gap and take that position, but on behalf of everyone who is behind them within the city walls. And so we see this principle of something that is some, it's something that God values and might call us to, is to what we call stand in the gap for someone else who is under attack, who is, who is, who is experiencing uh, the maliciousness of the enemy or who is wrestling with the, the, the vagaries of time, the, those things that come along that we can't predict and life just throws hardballs at us and we don't have a glove to stop them with. Someone who will, who will take the place and stand before us or be stand before where you stand before someone else in the gap 
and be a protector for them. And we have come to understand in our Christian lives that prayer is a great and mighty tool, a great and mighty weapon against the things that come against us. And so the first thing, why is it important? I got three points again today, friends. Still no poem, but three points. The first one is, why should, we're answering the question of why should we pray for others? And I want you to go with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And this is uh, Paul has written this letter to tell people who Timothy is and that they should trust him because he has been Paul's disciple. He's, he's sort of been, he's been vetted. He's confirmed by Paul to be faithful in the teaching of the gospel and to be good and kind to those that he's working with and to be an example to them. And so uh, he's writing these letters to commend Timothy to others. So in, the, in that context, he says this, chapter 2, verse 1, first of all then, I urge that supplications, that's requests, asking, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for who? All people. So we're not talking about just praying for your friends, which is good. Not just praying for our church members, which is good. Absolutely wonderful. And will we stop doing that? Of course not. But he says, pray for all people. I know that um, my father and my mother and then dad continued this after my mother passed and then uh, Several years later, he, he met Bonnie here in this church, and they got married, and, and we love her to death. She's part of our family. Um, they continued this practice even then. Friends, I could be assured every single day of my life since my dad became a Christian that before he went to bed, he and my mother prayed for each of us children by name. And then would pray for our friends if there was something going on. And they would pray for their friends and would pray for our country and would pray for the world. I'd love to say that I'm that diligent and faithful, but I'm not. I didn't get that, whatever that is from my dad, I didn't get. But man, he would tell me all the time, uh, something would go on, something would happen. And he'd say, well, just remember, I prayed for you. And I knew that in the context of that, of course, I felt great that he prayed for me. Amen? But I knew because of his practice and the other conversations we'd had, I knew what that really meant. He took these words to heart. May we all, I'm, I'm convicted by this. Pray for all people, for kings and all who are held in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful, praise God, and quiet life godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. I wonder sometimes if our world 
would be in better shape if all of us who count ourselves as Christians really believed this and took it to heart and put it into practice. There's a tension there that we've discussed between how our prayer may or may not change things and the sovereign plan of God. Uh, we know that the world is, is messed up to a degree and it's messed up by sin and that is a progressive problem. But I also know that in this space right here and other experiences of my life, we have prayed, I have prayed, you have prayed for individuals, for circumstances, for larger things. And it certainly appears that the hand of God has moved. We talked about that last week. Sometimes, sometimes we don't get an answer from God because we're not persistent. Okay. Fervent prayer. Effective prayer. Somehow moves the heart of God. But why do we pray for others? In this passage, we learn that we pray for others because then we are working where God is working. God has an intent here. What did he say? It's my desire that everyone, Paul says, God's desire is that everyone would come to know him and know the truth. And if that's God's desire and our praying for one another, praying for kings and queens and presidents and ambassadors and the neighbor down the street, the checker at cars, the, the, the folks wandering around down at Gamble and 15th. If we were praying for everyone, we are joining the work of God because those are all people that he wants to know the truth and to come to him. It's going to be short today, by the way. Praise God for that. Amen. I say that and then you know what happens. I just, I just jinxed it right there. All right, so one, why do we pray for others? Because that gets us to working where God is working. We are joining the work of God. Uh, Henry Blackaby wrote an incredible material that's been so useful to the church called Experiencing God. And that's the, that is the theme. That is the underlying theme. Find out where God is at work and then get in it. Get with him. Get alongside God. That's why when we talk about the church here, which, by the way, thank you for being here today. This is a wonderful crowd to see here this morning. You're blessing me just by being here. That's why we always talk about church growth happens two ways. There's two things that happen. One, we invite people to come because if people don't know we're here, they can't come to be here with us, right? That's the, that's the simple thing. But the other thing that makes me so much more excited is when God begins to draw people like Randy prayed about this morning, that we are, would be a lighthouse and that God begins to draw people. And when that begins to happen, then we have an opportunity to get to work where God is working because he's moving. And we just know that that's going to be multiplied and, and his, his work is just going to be so fruitful in that way because we're joining what he's already doing instead of trying to do something only in our own strength. So there's real power in praying for others 
that are not necessarily directly connected to us, but we're just praying for those who are out there in need of the truth. There's power in that because God is at work. All right, second, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Uh, which, by the way, I'll say this, the fourth, fifth, sixth chapters of Matthew on into the seventh, these are some of the most important words in the Gospels. Uh, we have taught through uh, the Sermon on the Mount many, many times here. Um, I think it even goes back to, well, really you could go back to chapter 3. If you want to know what it means to live as a Christian in the world and in the kingdom of God at the same time, this is the place. Because Jesus is instructing us here. And he's going to do, he's going to do it right here. But I, I really, we love to tell people that are new to Christ, we say, okay, well, the Gospel of John is a great place to read. The whole Gospel of John is a great place to read to learn about who Jesus is. And then I love to direct people to this passage here, this, this chunk here, kind of Matthew 3 through 7. And this is, this is what it looks like to live like a believer. And the words are so rich. Um, we might return to the Sermon on the Mount later this year because it's so important. And here you'll hear it. It ties in right here. Verse 43. You have heard that it was said... You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, I want to pause there. I'm not sure where they heard this. Because it's not in the Bible. <laughs> right? This whole love your neighbor as yourself thing was not news when Jesus said it. When they said, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love God and love people. This was not, should not have been news. Because it goes all the way back to before the Ten Commandments. And we've talked about this many times. Even when, so let's say, okay, let's say it was confused before the Ten Commandments and God really had to sort of spell it out with the Ten. You can draw a line right down the middle of those. And half of that is about how we love God and half of that is about how we love our neighbor. And so I don't know where they've heard this, but it wasn't from the Torah, which they had. It wasn't from those sacred texts that they read in the, in the synagogue every Sunday, but apparently it was pretty common belief that this is how we should do it. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and, what? Pray for those who persecute you. Ooh, I like that. Going on in verse 45, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies so that you will demonstrate that you are a child of God. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the ew, tax collectors do the same? 
I used to love to teach this text at Faith Baptist Church because we had two people that were in our church who were tax collectors, worked for the IRS. It was always great to like, there, there you are, buddy. Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, that word perfect here, we shouldn't misconstrue that as, as being sinless. Right? I mean, that's the goal. I love that saying. Um, I'm not sinless, but I sin less than I used to as God is sanctifying me and, and helping me to be a righteous person. I'm not perfect, but uh, maybe I'm perfecter than I was. I don't know. But when he says you, you must be perfect as your heavenly father in heaven is perfect, he's talking about a, this, very, this very succinct idea which is that you cannot think of yourself as more than someone else. You cannot, you cannot deny the image of God in your neighbor that every person is, is imprinted with, that makes us distinct from the rest of creation, and you cannot see them as just an object. You cannot see them as someone without value or without worth. You must see them as God sees them, and God sees them as someone worthy to pray for and worthy to love. And so I say this about another reason that we pray for others is because we act towards others as God has acted toward us. Because, friends, the Bible says that our our sin and our arrogance and our disobedience puts us at odds with God, makes us enemies. And then he says this in Romans chapter 5, 6, and 8. This is one of my favorite passages. Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How does Jesus have the authority, the the, the position, the gumption to say, look, I know people are being mean to you. People are, people are persecuting you. People are torturing you. People are unkind to you. They're your enemies to your face. Love them. Pray for them. How does he have the position to say that? Because he knows his time is coming and he will be the ultimate sacrifice for us as spiritual enemies of God because of our sin. And even though we are, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him will never perish, but have eternal life. So why do we pray for others? Because we work where God is working, and we act toward others as God has acted toward us. 
he loved us even when we didn't love him. And then finally, Colossians chapter 1. Colossians, kind of an ignored little book, only four little chapters. But another part of Paul's prolific writing, uh, you know, uh, by the way, it's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. General Electric Power Company. That's how I remember that. <laughs> you might have your own acrostic. If, listen, when you grew up in like, um, uh, some of you will recall this, what, what was it, Bible drill? <laughs> trying to find the verse, trying to find the Bible. You had to, re you know, say what they were in order and all that kind of stuff. And you got a little star or something, lollipop, you know. You got you to come up with tools to be successful. So Colossians, one of these letters of the many written by Paul to different churches. And the reason those are called Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians is because those were written to churches in those cities. Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi, Colossus, Colossae, depends on where you read it. Colossians, the people there, he's writing to them. And then what's crazy about this, and this I was going to mention this back when we were looking at 1 Timothy, because 1 Timothy is written about Timothy, not to Timothy. But all of these letters, they go to their destination, and then they're just passed around through the community of churches. This is one of the ways that these were chosen to be in what we call the canon, right? The Bible that we have today. Why are they included? Because we have some good history that shows us that the early church treated these letters as scripture. There were others that didn't meet that bar. But these, they were passed around because the truth in them was so critical to the church as it was developing and growing in that first couple of centuries that these were treated as the Bible. That's why they're in ours. So this is what he says, Paul, writing to the church of the Colossians. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Now you can find this in other preambles of the letters that Paul wrote. He'll say uh, something like, I pray for you at every remembrance. I tell people that often, uh, we've talked again, and since we're talking about prayer, but you know, we did a whole series a couple times on prayer, which was really great. This idea of be in constant prayer is not, uh, you know, driving down the road, and you're, it could be, this is, this is just saying in principle, driving down the road just constantly talking to God. You could be. I'm debating whether I talk about an SNL sketch right now. That's what's going on in my head. All right, I'm going to do it. Um, Sally Field, Phil Hartman, God rest his soul. I miss that guy. She's at her kitchen counter, and you see her come in, and the entire time she's just running a verbal dialogue to God. And she's like, oh, I'm so, I, this is great. I'm thankful for this morning. I'm thankful that I woke up. You know, God, you're so good to me. And then, oh, I thank you. Thank you for this washcloth and the soap and these bubbles that are in the water and this, 
and it, it, it goes on for quite a long time. She's making a sandwich. She says, thank you for this white bread and this knife and, I'm, and the mayonnaise that I'm going to need. And then Jesus appears. <coughs> and he says, Matt, that's not right. He says, you're taking up a lot of my time. <laughs> and so this whole thing develops. The great news about that is God is never bothered by your prayers, right? You can take up all the time you want. So if that's your mode, is to just walk around and talk to God all the time, be aware people might think you're weird, but God's not bothered. But what does happen to me is I very much am like uh, one of the epistles here says that I pray for you upon every, every remembrance. Uh, I will think of all of you at any given time. You'll just come across my mind. I'll see something. I'll read something. I'll hear something. Or I'm just cruising down the street. You pop into my head. And right then, as soon as you enter my head, I pray for you. I don't, know, I don't know what's going on with you. If there's something specific that I know about, I'll pray for that. But I've tried to really discipline myself to be that way, that there's a reason that you've come to my mind, that I've remembered you in that moment, and so I lift you up. And sometimes, and some of you have experienced this, I will go, I need to text that person, and I'll text them, or I'll call them. And sometimes I don't, and then I'll get a phone call a couple of days later, and I'll go, hey, I got this thing going on. And I said, oh, man, I missed it. God was telling me I needed to call you that day or I needed to text you that day. And I prayed for you, but I missed the signal a little bit. And I try to get better at that. I think that's kind of an idea. That's one idea of being in persistent prayer. And so he says, we pray for you and thank the Lord Jesus Christ. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard the, before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, Epaphras, I don't know, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And I just think that's a, that's a beautiful picture there of this, this collection of believers where Paul is, praying for another collection of believers because they heard that they came to Christ, that they were, that they're believers and they're following Christ. And they said, every time we think of you, we pray for you and we just don't stop. We just keep praying for you. And so a third reason that we pray for others is because we follow the example of the apostles, the people who were there at the beginning, the things that they did and said, communicated them directly from the line of Christ, his teaching. Now, Paul's a little bit different story, right? His encounter with Christ was post-resurrection, which is wild to think about. But he's there alongside Peter and many of the others who walked the ground, same sandal prints as Jesus, heard from Jesus' own mouth. And so I think it's important for us to consider that the example of those who came before us at the very beginning, we should pay attention to that. What did they do and how did they do it? 
And what they did is they prayed for others at every remembrance. So why do we pray for others? We work where God is working. We act toward others as God has acted toward us. And we follow the example of the apostles. Now, just like last week, there's a little, a little hanger on here that I want to give you. I'm not going to reference the scripture. I'll let you go find it later. Generally, when we think about praying for others, we think about praying for their health, like we did this morning, uh, praying for their well-being, praying for the move of God, whatever that might be. There is, a, there is a kind of prayer that's described in the Bible that I would, I would urge you to, to be cautious with. It's called imprecatory prayer. <laughs> right? And it's a prayer that David did a lot of this, by the way, in the Psalms. God, you should zap that guy. Kind of like that. It's clearly no good if it's motivated by the thing that violates the very first thing where we're supposed to pray for everyone because we love them. No good. That's going to be one of those unanswered prayers. But there's an example, at least one example in Scripture, and I believe it's Paul who says, I have prayed for these brothers that their flesh might be destroyed so that their souls can be saved. Selton <laughs> uh, Griffin, a name that some of us will remember way back. I mean, he started Baptist work in Alaska. He used to say, he used to say, uh, some folks are going to get to heaven, smell a little bit like they've been to hell because they're going to be singed by the flames again. And I think that's kind of the idea of that imprecatory prayer. But there is an idea that when you face unrighteousness or you see unrighteousness happening towards someone who can't defend themselves, it's, it's the same doctrine that's underneath the idea of a just war doctrine to defend those who cannot defend themselves. There is a righteousness in saying, God, you should do something about that because that's not right. Because we can clearly demonstrate that it's not. With the ultimate goal always being reconciliation, right? Our goal still is that God's desire is that everyone come to know him and the knowledge of his truth. So we don't pray in that way because we want revenge. We pray in that way because we want God to do something good out of something that's bad. So I encourage you this morning, worship team, come join me. We're going to sing one more song together. In light of what God has done for us, in light of his love toward us, in light of the way others have prayed for us, let us continue to be people who pray for others, for those we love, for those we care about, for those who struggle, for those who might be considered our enemies for those who are against us, for those we don't even know, the nameless scores and scores of people around the world who need to know the truth of the love of God, let us be people who pray for them because we work where God is working, we act as God has acted towards us, and we follow the example of those who came before us. And I encourage you to be faithful to that. All right. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause the light of his face to shine upon you. May he turn his countenance towards you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a blessed week, my friends. What a great morning it's been with you. I love you very much.